Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 29th, 2023. We've already done an interesting show this morning with uh, the founder, the co-founder of DeepMinds, one of the leading AI companies that is acquired by Google, The Coming Wave, Technology Power and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma by Mustafa Solomon, an English technologist who now lives in Palo Alto. And we talked with Solomon about the role of the nation state in the 21st century, given all this profound technological change. What will become of the nation state? Do we want to strengthen it? Or do we want to weaken it? Uh, the book is one uh, uh, of the books on the long list for the business book of the year, the FT's um, illustrious award. And I think that theme of all this change and what this does to politics and the state is a really interesting one. Uh, on Monday, yesterday, we did a show with Simon Sharp, Five Times Faster, a book about politics and the environment and global warming. And last week we did one with Catherine Clark, who has a new book out about the building of Billionaire's Row in New York, a way in which uh, billionaires are taking over our cities. Many of these FT business books of the year focus on this, on the role of technology in changing the world and the, uh, the assumptions it makes on society and on the state. Um, and along with The Coming Wave, another of the books that's long-listed for the FT's uh, business book of the year is one called Tokens, The Future of Money in the Age of the Platform uh, by a Dublin-based writer and academic, Rachel O'Dwyer, who is joining us uh, today. The book is out in early October, both in the US and the UK. It's a Verso book, um, a more progressive publication uh, than some of the other business books on the list. Rachel, congratulations on tokens and your inclusion on the long list, even if the book isn't out yet. Uh, the book is about crypto and the way in which we are rethinking money in the 21st century perhaps you might um introduce what tokens and crypto means for the future of money absolutely i guess first of all i'd hasten to say that the book is about a lot more than um crypto and i guess a lot more than money so i guess the classic definition of money is um anything that can be used as a means of exchange a store of value or a unit of account uh, some people also add a way to pay taxes to this list because money, real money, tends to be issued and guaranteed by the state or by a sovereign. Uh, so tokens is the term that I use for all the money-ish or money-like things that circulate alongside state-backed money. Um, so that could be also, it could be crypto, so Bitcoin, but also things like book vouchers or Amazon gift cards, food stamps, um, snap balances, phone credit, Twitter cash tags, in-game currencies and NFTs are all examples of these kinds of tokens. And um, one way of looking at tokens is that they are somehow maybe less than money. So often tokens uh, can only be used, um, they're forms of exchange media that can only be used for specific things, uh, maybe only by specific people or in a specific time or place. So 
for example, gift balances um, that are given to Amazon Mechanical Turk workers, for example, can only be used by Mechanical Turk workers. Um, or, you know, anybody who's maybe bought beer in a student union bar uh, with a token that doesn't have an um, alcohol license might be familiar with those kinds of tokens. So tokens that have some kind of limited fungibility or have some kind of limited kind of exchange functionality. Uh, so tokens are less than money in some ways, but I I'd argue that they're also um, more than money. So tokens are used online to pay, but they're also used increasingly to do other things. So they're used to communicate, to bond, uh, to troll and to flex. So we think of something like uh, Dogecoin, for example, um, which, you know, is originally um, is a kind of a speculative currency, but it's also, you know, one of its original uses was to tip other users online for kind of funny content. Or if you think of in-game currencies or skins, you know, which are traded, which have an exchange value, but they're also used to, they have a prestige value. They're used to brag, or to show off. Even something like Venmo payments in the US, which is maybe, you know, again, you know, they're, they're kind of a form of payment, but they're also maybe used to, to show off or to joke among friends. So uh, I'm very, very interested in sort of opening up this world of tokens as being, um, Something that runs alongside state money, but which which right. Kind of so 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 this comes back to the issue of state money and the nation state. The subtitle yeah. of your book is "The Future of Money in the Age of the Platform." There have always, of course, been gift certificates, Rachel. When I was growing up, we used to get uh, gift cards for for bookstores, and there there are Amazon stores. Mm -hmm. How does um, how how does tokens? What is what? What does this proliferation, this almost ubiquity of one kind of token or another, as you say, it's beyond crypto, but crypto is an important piece of it. What does it tell us, in your view, about the future of money? Is is money changing? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think you make a really good point there, and um, one of the things that I'm doing a lot in my book is actually drawing on the history of these money-like things. As you say, tokens have always ghosted the sort of real economy. We've always had various different kinds of money like things alongside real money, but we're seeing a huge proliferation of these as kind of platforms or ICT companies with a legacy, not in banking or not in finance, but often in things like information and communications or data processing are emerging and taking on roles as almost money issuers or as banks. Like as so uh, a company like, Facebook, um, like uh, PayPal, for example. Yeah, PayPal, I guess, is a company that's sort of sitting on top of the publicly mandated system, sort of riding the rails. Or maybe a better example would be something like Amazon, where Amazon doesn't have a financial license, but, you know, ostensibly does everything else, um, everything that, that a bank does, um, you know, in terms of issuing money like things. Yeah, I remember a few years ago, um, Bezos, uh, mm -hmm. in partnership with Warren Buffett, launched an alternative privatized health network i'm not sure it really went anywhere but it it certainly perked my ears up is what amazon is doing in some ways a challenge in your view to central banks well it's interesting in in, in europe i know amazon is sort of working in partnership with the cd with uh, europe's sort of pilot schemes for cdbc so they're they're, um, I suppose, assisting in in the in sort of trials or sort of developments or conversations around what the digital euro might look like. Uh, they would just be speculation on my part what role they might take um, 
I mean, my speculation is, uh, I guess, um, right now, you know, the future of um, if if there were to be a sort of a CBDC situation, right now we have uh, central banks and we have uh, commercial banks. If you had a situation, I suppose. Uh, we have sorry, the central banks, commercial banks, and then we have kind of incumbent payment processors like Visa and Mastercard who control most of the payment space and and uh, actually still uh, recoup most of the payment fees. Um, were um, for example, Europe to issue sort of um, a CBDC on a kind of a retail basis, where actual users held uh, accounts with the central bank then somebody would have to kind of step in and take over the role of the commercial banks in terms of doing things like due diligence and uh, know your customer. And who better to do that than companies with a legacy in data information processing? That's entire speculation on my part. Um, but... Well, we want you to speculate, Rachel. Yesterday, we, um, we did a show with uh, one of America's leading critics of Silicon Valley, my old friend Jonathan Taplin, he has a new book out, out next week. Um, the End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. He, uh, and we talked in some detail, the, the show's already live. He, he's particularly critical, not just of crypto, but of NFTs. Is your book one of these books that suggests that NFTs and much of crypto is a scam, a fraud, or do you see it in a more theoretical and substantial way um i guess i have two answers to that i um i do see it as a kind of as a scam i guess in some ways i, I would see you know i've been studying or looking at nfts and blockchain since 2013 2014 so the tokenization of art using blockchain has a longer history than the kind of bubble that came to the fore in 2020 and 2021 um, so that people have been experimenting with using the blockchain to sort of store and securitize art since about 2014. So it has a longer sort of a legacy. Um, so I guess the first sort of answer I would have is that, you know, I, I'm kind of sort of skeptical and I feel like the sort of rise or interest in this in the last year or two is, is very much based around a particular kind of a, a sort of a desperation that that we've seen a kind of a perma crisis. I'm really interested in the book you just put up. Yeah, know. I think you'll enjoy it. And and, yeah. and for a counter argument, um, I'm sure you're you're familiar with the work of Edward Lee. No. He sees the tokenization of art and in, through NFTs as enabling creators to take control of their work. So he sees it as being not just real but actually beneficial. How would you respond to people like Lee? There's obviously a a large pro NFT community of thinkers, artists, speculators, entrepreneurs. Uh, what is your take on NFTs? How do they fit into this tokenization phenomenon? I mean, the data suggests that actual artists and creators aren't actually making uh, a lot of money from NFTs time and again. Um, you know, any, any kind of studies of actually who is benefiting from these suggests that there's no radical disintermediation taking place that's actually benefiting artists. And in fact, if you look at sort of the nature of the sales, they're still very much relying on blue chip galleries and kind of institutional consensus. Um, to sort of take place so they're they're relying by that i mean they're relying on the kind of the christies the Sotheby's, that sort of um very traditional kind of art market institutional spaces for 
legitimacy. So they're not really disintermediating. Are they Ponzi schemes, though? We had, uh, you're from Ireland, we had a a Scottish author on the show a couple of weeks ago, Jennifer McAdam, uh, who was involved with uh, OneCoin. Uh, She was one of the victims of OneCoin. Of course, that's just a a pure scam, a a pure... um, a pure Ponzi scheme, illegal, um, Bulgarian-based. Do you see some of these NFTs as essentially Ponzi schemes where the early people make money and then at the end everyone's left to pay the bills? Well, I mean, yeah, people are sort of analysing some of the sales that are taking place around NFTs, um, you know, subsequently on things like OpenSea and there's a lot of what's called wash trading, you know, where people are just sort of moving an NFT back and forth to sort of produce the appearance, I guess, of inflated sales, but actually they're just moving, kind of showing it back and forth between a number of, of false accounts to sort of produce the appearance of inflated sales. I don't know if you'd call that a Ponzi scheme exactly, but um, I guess maybe that comes back to sort of a point I was making earlier, which was that, you know, the interest in all of these NFTs, I think, do come down to a sort of a desperate bet situation that that is a Ponzi scheme. And did leave a lot of very poor or very most very vulnerable people were left kind of asked the bag. Yeah, it's always the classic. It's always in in, in Africa, there's a certain, I don't know what you would call it, irony or tragedy to the fact there was all these African villagers who were ripped off by a Bulgarian crypto scheme. Um, We are talking... I'm I'm kind of analysing the crypto.com ads, you know, the fortune favors the brave from 2021 at the moment, you know, LeBron James sort of to his younger self. And it's basically this idea that, that crypto, you know, was potentially sort of a path to generational wealth for disenfranchised black people who, you know, who struggled to, to, to build any kind of financial security because of discrimination. And of course the truth is the reverse. They were just stealing their money. Some of these people now are being, Sued. We are we are talking with uh, and uh, Rachel O'Dwyer, um, who is the author of a new book just out early next month, uh, early in October, "The Future of Money in the Age of the Platform Tokens." We're going to take a short break, uh, Rachel, now, and then I want to come back and talk spe- more, a little bit more specifically uh, about your excellent new book. Uh, I just want to remind all our viewers and listeners that uh, this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of core. Uh, culture and politics they touch on tech uh, very very excellent uh, quarterly very traditional uh, i'm going to run a short ad for liberties and then we'll be back with rachel o'dwyer the author of tokens the future of money in the age of the platform beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more at libertiesjournal.com. You have to use real cash, not tokens. Rachel O'Dwyer has a new book out called uh, Tokens. Uh, Rachel, you begin the book talking about these new platforms, uh, token platforms like Twitch and Chatterbait and OnlyFans. What does the existence of these platforms and their promises for both 
the creative community and consumers. What does it tell us about the future of a tokenized economy? Um, I, I was really, uh, I guess, sort of drawn to um, to the ways in which tokens were being used on on these platforms, and, and surprised, I suppose, that, that maybe there hasn't been more uh, research done on these. Uh, because they seem to sort of suggest uh, to me that platforms were um, acting as sort of employers, uh, using tokens as a way to act as banks and employers, but kind of with the sort of regulatory, extra regulatory deniability without actually having to officially be either. And I think uh, Amazon's Twitch is kind of a good example of this. So Amazon, um, since I think, uh, 2011 maybe have owned um, a game streaming platform called Twitch you know where you can watch other people play uh, games but you can watch lots of different things and one of them is sort of um, uh, I suppose content that sort of flirts with, flirts with sort of adult content but isn't quite adult content so kind of hot tub streams just chatting things like that so people in like blow up paddling pools and bikinis um, doing different kinds of uh, gamified sort of streaming content and um, you can buy sort of bits on Twitch to cheer for people that you like on the Twitch platform. So that can be for your favorite gamers or it can be for just your favorite personality or your favorite streamer on the platform. And people might be familiar with, uh, there was kind of an upsurge of interest in this a couple of weeks ago, actually, when a, a streamer on TikTok called Pinky Doll um, was kind of breakout famous, I guess, um, for doing, she was doing sort of streams on, on TikTok where she was responding to um, viewers uh, in exchange for virtual tips. So, so there's sort of a similar kind of practice of taking place on other platforms as well. Um, but this has been going on on Twitch for a good while. And um, so I was studying this sort of practice where users are basically, they're kind of tipping streamers in these Amazon-owned bits for their performances on the platform. And um, when those uh, bits are cashed out, the streamer, the performer, takes 50, takes a seventy percent cut, and Amazon takes a thirty percent cut of the uh, of the bit. Um, and um, yeah, I was I was just interested in these. So Amazon are very quick to state that bits aren't real money and that streamers aren't kind of employed, I suppose, by Amazon. Um, so they they operate as as what might be called scripts. So historically, companies often used to pay employers in what was called scripts. So it was a kind of a special token that was um, controlled by the employer and could only be redeemed through the employer's own store and um, kind of at a, a term sort of set by the employer. And um, it's kind of work in this particular way. So they're kind of a special token that 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 isn't official. Is Amazon acting in a sense unofficially at least as a central banker here? Uh, maybe central banker is a little bit extreme, but as a payments processor. And it's quite interesting because obviously often for things like um, sex work or various forms of online work or um, extremist content, something which is quite popular on Twitch uh, where, where where people have been maybe frozen out by PayPal. So QAnon, for example, or Russian and um, pro-Russian conspiracies. Or standards. Alex Jones's stuff. Mm -hmm. um, will find a home sometimes on 
places like Twitch where other payments processors have frozen them out. So this kind of extra regulatory sleight of hand work. So I mean, some it's interesting in a way, Rachel. But so what? So Amazon and another some of these other platforms are kind of reinventing money through tokens and people swap these things which have value for services watching people's videos mm. paying for content so what well i guess there's two points one is that the the token is often articulated at different different ways at both sides and um, so for chatterbait tokens for example which are tokens used by uh paid to sex workers on the streaming platform chatterbait it's very, very easy for um, consumers to sort of buy these tokens. You can buy them with any major credit card, for example, any any kind of payment system. But often for people who are cashing the tokens out for the workers, it can be very, very arduous and very, very difficult. So you're talking about like lengthy uh, electronic trade, you know, kind of checks, trade transfers, things that take a very, very long time. So it tends to be very, very clunky at one end for the person actually being paid and very, very easy for the person who's actually buying the tokens. Um, often the platform... Surprise, surprise, right? Yeah, the platform's taking a large chunk often of the tokens, so they, they're deciding... I mean, with Amazon, probably maybe the most extreme version would be something like Mechanical Turk. So for Turk workers, uh, Amazon's crowdfunding platform outside of the US and only up until recently, actually, um, and now outside of India. Um, so any worker outside of US or India working for Mechanical Turk, um, they're paid exclusively in an Amazon gift balance that can only be redeemed on the Amazon store. Um, so all of their uh, payments- yeah, very, None of this is particularly surprising. It certainly wouldn't come as a surprise to somebody like Jonathan Taplin, of course, who's a critic of big tech. I yeah. uh, said we, we talked and that's his kind of end of reality, I guess. Are, are you suggesting um rachel there needs to be stricter regulations on this that we shouldn't that the laws shouldn't allow an amazon to, to behave like a central banker in terms of mechanical turk or uh, or twitch well i mean i think if there's been one benefit maybe with things like um one benefit that we saw maybe from something like libra in 2019 is that maybe it did push forward you know greater sort of regulation um, one thing I felt quite strongly about and Libra was, of course, uh, Facebook's yeah. cryptocurrency that got a lot yeah. of central yeah. government pushback. Yeah. And I mean, I think it was an interesting moment because I think for a lot of people that felt like a moment of technological inevitability where platforms had sort of definitively won. You know, we could say that maybe there's two things. The state still has a monopoly over currency and war. And... So are we seeing today, do you think, and, and this comes back to Mustafa Suleiman's um, conversation, are we seeing a, a struggle between the platforms, the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples of the world, and the state for the future of money? Um, yeah, I do. I think we are. But I, I, I have to say, I sort of went back and forth on it as I was writing the book. Because for me, you know, the sort of battle that kind of came out around um, Libra between the state and the platform really kind of made me rethink things. So uh, when Facebook announced that it was going to issue its own token in 2019, I think a lot of people thought that the battle had been fought and won. But instead, we saw stronger... Fought and won by who? By Facebook? By Facebook, absolutely. But we saw stronger regulation. We saw the development of proposals for state-backed digital currencies that worked to suppress the expectations that platforms were going to issue and guarantee money in the future. 
And so where the balance fell there was unclear. In China, then obviously we had, you know, the, everything with the super apps like Alipay and WeChat Pay, two incredibly powerful popular payment apps that experienced very strong regulation by the Chinese government, particularly because they were seen to compete with the government's launch of the digital yuan. But then, you know, it's kind of interesting, even with that strong regulation, my understanding is that Chinese citizens are still leaning quite heavily towards those everything apps in favor, you know, in favor of those. Um, so, you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting that those balances are still always shifting. Even something I'm finding interesting is how even when we're we're sort of seeing maybe a regulation of platforms um, and the kind of rise of CBDCs, we're seeing maybe platforms. CB, tell, tell everyone what a CBDC is. Maybe, the essential bank digital currency, which obviously is a very contentious topic in, in the US right now. It seems to be forming, you know, very, very, very significant topic, I guess, within the, the current electoral cycle, much more than it's a topic actually for us in the EU right now. It should be more of a topic for us in the EU than it actually is, I think. Um, but my understanding is it seems to be a very hot topic. So your uh, book, the, the book is published by uh, Versa, which is, uh, and I don't think there's any secret here, and, and I mean this in all the best sense, it's a left-wing press. Yeah. And often associates Verso books with one kind of manifesto or another, often quite anti-capitalist. So a couple of questions for you. Firstly, is this in a way a manifesto in, in favor no. of a, a certain future of money? And, and do you think that there can, can you have a tokenized economy within capitalism, which is palatable to progressives? Um, so uh, when I was writing the proposal for the book, actually the one sticking point I think I had with my editor was that I did not want to write a manifesto. And I think books can be um, kind of diagnostic without being prescriptive. And I'm personally, I'm not, you know, the, the, I actually came to this area because I was interested in monetary activism and became very disillusioned with it from, from working in it, I guess. So I definitely didn't really feel like I had strong recommendations to make uh, one way or the other. So uh, it's kind of cautionary and it's it's diagnostic and it's sort of describing things. But I'm actually quite critical of uh, some of the kind of left monetary activist ideas. Like I'm very critical of blockchain. I'm very critical of the idea that we can somehow design the right token and that we're going to produce some magical new token society, which is an idea that you, you do get, I think, on the left. Mm. Uh, so I think I'm, you know, I'm possibly going to annoy more people on the left even than I will annoy. Well, maybe left. that's the good thing about Versa books is they even publish books which are critical of the left. Yeah, but so you mentioned blockchain. We've got an upcoming show with Alex Tapscott, one of the great prophets. Some people might say peddlers of crypto and blockchain and Web3. What's your sense of the way in which the Web3 movement, it's lost a bit of its fashionability, but it's still relevant, has mm -hmm. incorporated the idea of the future of money in a, in a decentralized way and, and made, I guess, tokens one of the, one of the features, well, well, the, the, the thing that, that, that creates the monetary economy, I guess, a tokenized economy. Um I I think I, I, I found it really um, kind of hilarious, I guess, when when Web3, I suppose, 
first kind of came up, came to the fore and, and started talking about this idea of decentering power, re- removing the middleman, is that idea sort of crops up again and again and again, I think, and particularly around money activism and tokens. Um, so Joseph Proudhon, who, you know, s- sometimes known as was the father of anarchism, designed tokens that were... French, 19th century political activism. Yeah, but designed tokens to do away with what he called the parasitic middlemen. Um, so um, in the solution to the social problem, which was sort of, a, I suppose, a book he could have been nearly written by somebody like Vitalik Buterin, who's, you know, the founder of Ethereum. Um, it's all about usurping the middlemen. It's all about doing away with the parasitic banks uh, that are sucking it like humanity. And um, it's, it's just funny. You get that sort of idea kind of time and time again. They're going to disintermediate the state. They're going to take away um, power by designing the right kind of money. But I think, you know, what really what you get is you kind of remove one kind of power without checking multiple others. You simply allow another kind of power, another sort of power to emerge in its place. Um, and I think, you know, what you get with a lot of the kind of broified Web3 politics is that they preach decentralization, but many other types of power go unchecked, or they're sort of preaching the end of the state or the end of the commercial bank or the en- end of an incumbent payments processor like Visa or, or MasterCard, uh, but only to make space for, for a new intermediary, like a blockchain startup, for example, or a new payments processor like PayPal or an everything else like Twitter. Um, so it's not really decentralizing anything. They're just replacing one center with another. Um, what about the nature of our economics, particularly in the social media age, the so-called influencer economy? Um which has given rise in, in some ways to the, uh, the tokenized economy. What comes first? Are they bound up with one another? They seem intimately related and hard to separate. It's fascinating. I think it, it's, um, it comes back to what we were even just talking about a minute ago, about like the, the sort of power of the platform, I guess, to shape the economy. And maybe this is actually where the power of the platform lies in terms of shaping the economy. We think of something like... Um, the Silicon, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, you know, a few months back, and um, you know, was that a bank run in some ways that was precipitated by um, by viral contagion on Twitter? You know, was the short squeeze uh, um, of you know uh, was was were some of the kind of more significant um, market events that we've seen over the last few years in some ways shaped by um, the rise of new sorts of financial influencers on social media channels and by viral sentiment on platforms like the platform formerly known as Twitter um, and their ability to kind of meme and, and sort of shape markets, I guess, through vibes and, um, you know, viral contagion, I guess, that couldn't have right, been... We have, a, we have what some people call a mimetic economy or the economics Absolutely. of, of the yeah. meme. And you couldn't have... I mean, obviously, you know, we've had animal spirits, and, and but, like, have we written that into a risk model uh, in 2008? Probably not. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, of course, everyone assumes that in the age of the influence economy, the power lies with the influencers, but you're suggesting actually the reverse, the power lies with the platforms. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I guess for me, maybe I'm contradicting myself a bit because I do think then there is a there is a kind of a space there in which you know it works both ways. Like there is also sort of power 
Right. It's really, you know, you've, you've definitely stumbled on a fascinating area. And I guess, I mean, money is all about trust. I accept a dollar bill because I trust that I, that, that has value. We yeah. live in an age of a crisis of trust. Mm-hmm. And again, Rachel, I assume that the tokenized economy is both a reflection of this scarcity of trust and a, a theoretical solution to it, an alternative to trust. Is that fair? Absolutely. Um, uh, in Ireland in the 1960s and 1970s, there was multiple um, bank strikes. So the banks closed for months at a time. Uh, you would think that would be a recipe for a complete economic collapse, but the opposite was the case, actually. So publicans and shopkeepers came to the fore and acted as de facto banks uh, in the absence of a banking system. That worked, I guess, because at that particular time in Ireland, you had maybe a stronger sort of akin communal economy. So my dad actually was a publican at at the time. And uh, so pubs basically uh, were cashing in IOUs that people were just writing down on pieces of paper. I don't think that would work today. And so, yeah, post... Do you think you would have taken it from a stranger if I'd have wandered in as a... Oh, exactly. ...visitor from California? I don't think you would have trusted me. Exactly. It only worked because it was kind of a small communal network that breaks down, you know, as soon as you you move into that sort of space of kind of unknowability, uh, that sort of space of risk, you know, similarly to the the panic of whatever, what was it called, 1837, where people moved rural areas into cities and so um yeah very much bitcoin obviously is is emerging and responding to that sort of crisis of trust in in banks post 2008 and um yeah i think it's it's interesting to see it it, you know is the kind of growth or interest in crypto um also responding to maybe more deep-seated issues around trust today Fascinating stuff. Tokens, the future of money in the age of the platform. Uh, it's already been long listed uh, amongst other books, including The Coming Wave, another book we talked about this morning. Uh, Tokens is by Rachel uh, O'Dwyer, based in uh, Dublin. Rachel, congratulations on the book. It's out uh, early next month, or early in October. Can I, can I give you a token uh, as an appreciation for your uh, appearance on Keenon? Absolutely. What are you going to do with it? Um, probably uh, keep it. I guess as a token, as a token of my uh, my success. <laughs>